Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, you know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl in the Gov, the podcast. Welcome to the 200th episode of Girl in the Gov, the podcast. What is Crazy. time? What is life? I feel like the start of this podcast felt like quite literally like two hours ago yesterday, but it also feels like when I was back in high school or something like just so far off. It's just crazy. It's, it's been an eternity. And this it's is like also it. coming on three years. This is like the time, October. It was like end of September, October of 2020 when we started. So we just came across our three year anniversary and now we're hitting 200 episodes, which is just absolutely nuts. That is genuinely so crazy because I will say, and this actually leads to a very funny story. Wait, hold I on. Guys- Pause because oh. your sound is. Does it sound strange? It sounds like it's coming Can through I your check pods. The, it is. Good call. Hold on. Why is it? It's not picking up my mic. Of course. <laughs> you don't even need to say it. <laughs> not plugged in. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> and that's not having a podcast for three years. <laughs> <laughs> On the 200th episode, you'd think we'd we'd get it together and plug in oh. our mics, but no. So no, now Samantha sounds it. better, and here we go. No, legit, thank God, because we we know all the the back and forth of the sound qualities and whatnot, which I'm really going for a risk here holding the mic. So if you want to see what that looks like, go to YouTube, because we are on YouTube. Oh, originally back in the day, we weren't on YouTube, but now we are. So yada, yada, yada. Anyways, besides that, it feels like an eternity ago that we started this pod and that like, honestly, Girl on the Gov has just taken such a different direction in like the best of ways. Like, OG, this was like an events company. And now we've become like a media company with newsletters and consulting and all these different things that like literally if Maddie and I never crossed paths would never have happened. And it's just like the weirdest of universal things and so cool. And like forever will be this thing that we're like, what? Like so in awe of and whatever. But obviously throughout time and as like any business, you evolve of like things you, you do and things that you're like, yeah, okay. Like that was fun for a sec, but like, we're not going to keep doing that feature or like sometimes things just literally fall off your radar, I guess. But that leads me to my story, which I was obviously harassing Maddie with while she was away, because of course, who else is going to text bombard bombard her than me? (laughs) It's going to be me constantly. Three, three years and 200 episodes of me getting 
like what's the what's the word like not quadruple like what's the word for like 10 time like 10 texts in a row I get on a daily basis usually throughout the years it's been at like 6 a.m pacific time and I'm just like my phone is buzzing next to my face I'm like it's Samantha I just know it is (laughs) anyways yeah the The text bombardments have been real I can't help it. I do. Well, sometimes I do try and be like, okay, she's not up yet. Like, wait, like let her have her coffee first. <laughs> like sometimes I really do think about it. And then other times I'm like, if I don't tell her now, I will never remember. And she'll read this in like six hours and it'll be fine. But nonetheless, so throughout the years, like I was saying, like things, like sometimes we continue doing things, other times we're not, whatever. And I get this email and I see, it, it was like past like classic working hours. And granted we work some kind of random hours sometimes. So like I don't totally think it's wild when I get like a, you know, 9 p.m. email, but I like see the top of it. And it's this like vague media email. And we've been getting a lot of weird spam emails in general. And I have a second one that I want to talk about, but like generally like very weird spammy. So I open it and it is literally, first of all, the emails we had sent are from 2021. Like they're so old. Okay. Like ancient history. I don't even know who this person is at this point. And two years later, like they had never replied to our thread, to our pitch. And we had followed up even too, which is fine. Like sometimes you send pitches out and you don't get answers and that's just life, whatever. No, no, no bad blood. But then the response was this fell off my radar (laughs) and I have never laughed so hard in my life. Like, like it fell off your radar. It was never even on your radar. Like what? Like I, I literally immediately thought of like giggly squad when they say like, this didn't come across my desk. And it was like that energy. And I just think that we need to say it fell off my radar to things that we should know about, but like didn't know about because that is just so iconic. And then to like add to that, I like didn't sometimes, like sometimes I still respond to old things. Things really do fall off people's radars. Totally fine. Life happens. But I was like literally looking again through years is a lot of time. There's a lot of time. So think about where the world was at 2021. Totally different. Totally different. Like I felt like I was going on an archaeological dig in my inbox when this popped up. I was like, what a time People capsule. are so interesting, but so well, I gotta get to story two. Mm. Mm. And so for more bombardment emails. <laughs> so we got like a fair range of different, you know, brand or org emails or partnerships that come through our inbox. Some we do, some we don't whatever. Like that's part for the course of like doing anything in like the digital creator world. Sometimes they're a little like, you know, off base for you specifically, but you're like, okay, I get how we like ended up here. This one, this one, we got an email. We've been followed up four times, by the way, from a right wing soap company. Like they're Mm -hmm. literally like right wing is in their names and they're like, we should do a partnership, blah, 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 blah. And I, Literally, first I thought it was a prank, but then we kept getting the auto like follow ups, and I have never laughed more. And I, I suggested never... we do it. <laughs> yeah, no, the soap company. That one was funny. I, I was like, I just want to at least see like what is right wing soap. You know, like what we should answer in two years and say, sorry, this fell off our radar. There it is. There it is. That is perfect. Got him. Solution found. The soap is marketed not just like for like, like the modern conservative is like their marketing, but it's for men. Modern conservative men. How did we end up on this list? Shook. Shook. So weird. There's so many weird niche things out there and specifically on like the conservative side of things, like just the amount of niche, like merch and swag items that they 
you know, monetize with. I just, it's hilarious to me, but none the less. Nonetheless, I do have one more thing. And then I need to ask about your trip, obviously, because guys, we're catching up right now in this moment. But did you see that there is an article on the Democratic Women Governors and it's all about like their group chat? I did. That was like weirdly serendipitous. I was like, we were I think just we manifested talking about it. that on our last episode was the governor's group chat and asking if there was one. And now there's a whole article about it. So to say we don't have impact, to say we don't have influence would just be a farce at this point. Is that a That's word? a hell of a vocab word. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a farce, okay, a fallacy. <laughs> oh my God. I'm getting a dictionary. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. But wait, so a, how's the trip? B, I just already have one critique, and that's that you didn't put the cow picture in your roundup from the trip. That cow deserves. I do have another yeah. roundup coming. Okay. I'm just like totally forgot about it and lazy to post, but I'll maybe do that today. I don't even know if I included the cow in that one, though. I just, there's so many pictures to choose from. It was hard. But the, but the trip was amazing. Got to see the monkeys, got to see the cows, got to see the rice terraces the beach, the hot Australian surfer, tourists, just, it was a great trip. It was a great trip with family and just needed, needed the change of scenery, you know, see new culture, mm-hmm. especially just being stuck in the U.S. for going on four years, you know, just needed to get out, especially given the state of the world and the state of our country over the past few years, like to just be in another one um, that's so different than ours was really nice. Yeah, I feel like refreshing and like the sense of just seeing something new. I I totally get that. And when there's little cows involved, of course. Right. All I can focus on is the animals. I'm sorry. Like mm-hmm. I can also focus on the Australian surfers. And I just want to know like what's in their <laughs> water because I have never met a not hot Australian. I don't think it's possible. And the women are if, really hot too. I'm I'm just again, what what are they eating as little kids? Like, what are they drinking? Like, there has to be something in the water. They're all mm-hmm. so hot. I know. It was overwhelming, mm-hmm. especially when you're there, like, with family. I'm just like, this was a girl's trip. We would just tear this place up, you know? <laughs> dead. Absolutely dead. I actually have a really weird weird transition because there is a very important topic we want to touch on today but something that is weirdly in line with this is that there was in bali is a hindu country like that's hindu is very the prevalent religion there and the swastika is actually a symbol of the hindu religion that means something completely different than what we know it's like prosperity and peace and like positivity weirdly and there's signs everywhere like on the temples and all the things and it was just very triggering given the times that we're in to see that but it's just so interesting I always forget that like that's actually a symbol in many other religions that is like not representative of what we know it to be the very dark side of it so I just found that very very interesting and weirdly like pertinent tbt to when she and a few years ago I think it was a few years ago. Oh my God, yeah. Had the necklace that was a swastika. Yeah. I just, the whole thing is, look, I don't know enough about the religion to specifically talk about what it means in that regard. And I do think it is often 
a thing that happens where something good is co-opted for bad. We see that in language even about Jessica Valenti talks about this all the time with abortion news and how words that are used for progress now get co-opted by the right to actually sort of like do the reverse psychology. So I do think that regardless, like symbols can be obviously very good things. Sometimes they can turn into bad things. I know. I'm just so curious, like the history of how that was like co-opted and branded for Nazis, essentially just variant. I'm going to have to do a deep dive, but I, me and my mom were like, oh my God, like just triggered and seeing it. And then we were like, oh, and I was like, oh wait, no mom, I'm pretty sure that's like a religious symbol in Hindu it means. And then I looked it up, but it like means prosperity and good luck. It's just like completely different and separate, but it's just like such a triggering weird symbol to see out in the wild. No, it, it totally. And I think at this point, like in, since like literally like October 7th, like there's just a point where like, sometimes I just don't even have the words anymore. Like I'm personally so emotionally exhausted. I like can't even uh, begin. It's so wild and crazy and scary. Like this world has really become a quite terrifying place. Yeah. Again, like I, I don't even sometimes like have the words for it. I think like as like an American Jew, like you always know that like they're is anti-Semitism. I've seen it on the left for like a long time. Like this is not crazy that we're seeing this. This is not the first time I've seen anti-Semitism or I've sort of been like, okay, like gonna, you know, maybe not partner with that org or not partner with that person. Or you kind of like know how they feel. You grow up knowing like you always have like a Rolodex of people that like would hide you during the Holocaust versus that wouldn't. You don't put that you're Jewish on forums because you know how that went previously. Like there are so many little things in which you try and hide in plain sight because of exactly what's happening right now. Yeah. And this has become a situation in which it has pulled every anti-Semitic person out of the woodwork. And what was a terrorist attack by a terrorist organization against civilians, innocent people that are holding hostages somehow released more anti-Semitism. And Obviously, what we're seeing now in Gaza and towards the Palestinians who we very much want peace for and want life and safety and all of the good things for they do not deserve to die because of a fucking terrorist organization, like Mm -hmm. point fucking blank, like absolutely and anti-war in all cases, like whatever. That one thing is the silence after the terrorist attack itself, the justification of it happening the denial of it happening and the gaslighting of Jews about anti-Semitic things happening since that day before even Israel had literally taken hold back of the South of Israel from like the terrorists that had come across was wild. So it's like yeah. when people are saying, oh, well, like are now trying to backpedal and react as if like they cared about Jewish people. Like, no, your silence was already heard. We already notched it. And then yeah. you add to it all of the violent acts of anti-Semitism and crazy shit that's happening. The swastikas being put in places like the, I find like safe places like Montauk, like mm-hmm. crazy shit. Students at Cornell, like literally being like unable to leave their freaking dorm or go to their kosher eating hall. Like, yeah, it, it's so insane. And I think so much of this is disinformation and misinformation. Totally, I think it totally is. That. Like it's crazy. And what's insane too is people telling you, that something's not anti-Semitic when they're not Jewish and they don't know what anti like. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is like, what's so frustrating is that usually hate in like any form is is stemmed from misinformation. Like whether you're racist or whatever, it's like, it's stemming from you 
misunderstanding a group of people or thinking you know something that you don't, or it's usually some type of conspiracy that's just extremely harmful. And it's also so frustrating in this specific conflict and this war that, you know, the anti-Semitism from the people who are calling for ceasefire and are advocating for Palestinian people to um, partner that advocacy you're doing like with anti-Semitism and coming after Jewish people is just so unproductive. And that's what's like so insane. It's that the anti-Semitism is causing so much division where there should be unity and like wanting peace and being anti-war and wanting to protect the Palestinian people. Your anti-Semitism is not doing that. In fact, it's like right. doing the opposite and it's hurting more people. And it's also creating this divide for like Jewish people to have to now be so defensive, like understandably, and yeah. not be able to like also partner with the idea of like wanting peace and wanting a ceasefire and wanting all these things that like we all universally want. But now Jews have to be on the defense like so hard because their lives are at stake. So it's just totally. so frustrating to see when this happens. I feel like in super big kind of like world conflict events, all these things, like when people get divisive like this, it's so unproductive and it's so frustrating to see. And it's like, it's hard to find a way out or like figure out how we dig ourselves out of it because it just beca becomes such a spiral. And you know, the way out and the solutions and all the things like don't even seem like in the realm of possibility anytime soon because of yes. the way people are reacting so wrongly. Like, and it's, it's everything down to, there's this comedian that we follow that like dabbles in some political stuff. Right. And her in the comments section, justifying kidnapping saying, Oh, well they're kidnappers. Like they, they don't seem to be, have been treated that badly by, by their kidnappers. Kidnapping in its very, very yeah. basic sense is wrong violent right. and unokay like where do we get to this point where we have people that are justifying and it's the problem is like as a jewish person that literally has seen this evolve over the years and someone that's like pretty like i would call myself christian passing like you've seen these things you hear them in these spaces that you're in and now they're like so loud and you see especially like these things where it's like everyone gets the okay unless you're jewish like it really, yeah. I see it even too, like the amount of reproductive organizations that I've had to unfollow, which is so fucking sad because they have made like, obviously Palestinians deserve reproductive justice. I am a thousand percent for it. I will be in the fucking streets marching for that. Okay. But like when you don't include Jewish people and the Jewish women that were literally raped and had no bodily autonomy, mm -hmm. I fail to see your ability to encompass all women and all people that are able to reproduce in your justice. Like you don't have it. And there is this continually like growing amplification and reveal of that in so many of these progressive organizations. And it's like, yeah, it's guys, just like, so frustrating. Are against like... What you're supposed to be about, which is not exactly hating people. You're supposed to be about inclusivity. Bring that same energy to everyone. To and you can't like choose if you're progressive and you want peace and freedom for everyone, then you can't choose who gets that. You have to stand up every time. And yeah. obviously that's exhausting to do. There's always people to fight for, but like, I don't know. It's just so frustrating to see like how standing up against 
the Israeli government, for example, like do that. But you can't then also come after Jewish people and think that that's a part of that same like agenda of like what you're trying to achieve. Like it's so unrelated. You're so stupid for thinking that get your head out of your ass and be better. Like it's just insane. Like I feel like, and there's so many examples of that where it's like you wouldn't, or at least you fucking shouldn't like be mad at a person of Saudi Arabian descent because the Saudi Arabian government executed the journalist that I'm like, his name, it starts with a J and his last name starts with a K. Sorry, guys. But like, it's the same thing they're doing with Hamas. Like they're not associating Palestinian people with Hamas and the terrible things that they have done. Like they're able to separate those two entities, which you should just like, you should separate like the Israeli government and Jewish people. And I will say this is like we as Jews like continually get like we're either too white for you or we're not white enough and either way we end up in the middle you want us dead like that's how like we feel it's like whose token can we like which spot does it make it easier for us for you to hate us like and it's like so wild too like I'm seeing you know all these colonization narratives we're called Jews because of the land of Judah which is what Israel is on like it is most Jews are literally Sephardic from Africa and the Middle East, which make up most of the Israeli population, and they are people of color. So when you call these people white supremacists, you're calling people of the color white supremacists. Yeah. I can't. And then Ashkenazi Jews, like Alicia Laban, who we've had on the show to talk about Iran, she's an amazing Iranian activist, talks so perfectly about the history of the region and the different dynamics and just about humanity in general and also coming from like a Middle Eastern perspective of like what the region is actually about and like having a vast connection to like her, I'm pretty sure her dad is still in Iran last time we chatted with her. Mm -hmm. Like she very much gets these dynamics like versus like, I don't know, every fucking random person that all of a sudden thinks they've got a PhD in Middle Eastern like dynamics between countries, like in different people. Like it's so crazy. I, I really... I don't. Yeah, it's just like frustrating to see like activism that should be dark, should be productive and like should be calling, which like there is a lot of it. There is a lot of good activism still happening right now, but it's also like a lot of people are partnering it with this like hatred notion of anti Semitism that's just unacceptable. So just want to take some time to talk about that and to continue to like reiterate to people that it's so important to like critically think, do your research. And just stay like in tune of what's going on. I think that's just so important to not like tune out as hard as it is to consume this information every day. Like, I think it's like our duty to stay involved and stay informed. And it doesn't mean you need to like speak out on it, but just stay informed and like know what's going on and be able to critically think and like be there for your Jewish friends, be there for your Palestinian friends. and put humanity first because that's what we need right now so and i will make one other like just addition to that is you guys know we usually just cover like domestic politics at large we will be continuing to do that so if you're going to our instagram page and you're not seeing stuff about it we are largely trying to keep it domestic there we put in the gov hub i believe it was the october 16th edition resources news sources that we go to for information please go back to that Um, and check those resources out. Stay on top of like the news sources that you are looking through, being like thoughtful about like what they're reporting. And also too, like 
read multiple sources about an issue. We say that about anything, including American politics, like use multiple sources to form your opinion. Don't just read a headline and run for for the hills with it. Like you need to think about it. And news, especially in this type of environment, is constantly evolving, which is part of also too why we're why we've created sort of this strategy about it. What we're talking about now is just things have evolved to such a scary rate. We have got to talk about it. Like we will not let another Holocaust happen because we refuse to to talk about it in this situation. So there's that. So please go check out those different news sources that we have linked there. Um, and also I will say this because this has happened a bunch of times. We've gotten some very nasty DMs. We've gotten tagged in some misinformation, some disinformation. We've gotten some very anti-Semitic comments. You're going to get blocked. You're just going to get blocked. So save your breath. Have yourself a nice time. Get yourself an ice cream. Walk around the park. Take a deep breath. Don't bother. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Love love that. Love that idea. Love. Also, speaking of which, need to read Britney Spears' book. That is on my radar. I know some golf clubbers are reading it. Okay, yeah. So something's totally off topic really quick, too. I read, well, I read Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo on my trip. How was it? It was really good. Highly suggest. I know I'm like way behind the bandwagon. I know it was a thing so long ago. But another one that I read that was pretty good, like I finished it in like two days, was Verity by Colleen Hoover. It's like her, like one of her like thrillers. She never does a thriller. It was really good. It was dark and twisted, but it was good. Anyways, we have a guest today to introduce Samantha to the honors. We do. We are talking about student debt relief, which has been another kind of evolving topic. Like we saw the, you know, what was like the mass cancellation. Then we saw the Supreme Court, you know, decision come through. Then we saw some more solutions like the save plan. We're seeing more negotiations about different variables happening. So there's lots to talk about. This is definitely like sort of like beginner's guide to like where we are. I'm sure we will cover this again because I expect there to be many an update many an update. But anyways, we are talking with Melissa, who's the founder of We the 45 Million, and they work in, of course, the student debt cancellation advocacy space. So could be a more perfect person to chat about student debt relief. What? You know what I mean? That's I know what you mean. You. See? See, people? There it is. So anyways, without further ado, here is Melissa. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Alrighty, Melissa, welcome to Girl Make Up the Podcast. We are so excited to have you here. So much to talk about. I am excited to be here too. I wish that we were celebrating the implementation of student loan relief. Mm. Instead, though, these not you know those nasty Republicans just fight really hard. But luckily, we're trying again. That's what you do. If at first you don't succeed, you just try try again. Mm-hmm. Totally. That and honestly, it gives maybe some space for some improvements on an original plan, which obviously we'll have questions about. But we want to first start and get like a little bit of background so people know you, they know what we're getting into in terms of the student debt cancellation discussion. You are the founder of an organization called We the 45 Million. How did this organization start? What's its like mission? And, you know, sort of like how did you get personally like into the student debt cancellation fight? Great. Well, it's great to virtually meet you, Sammy and Maddie. I'm really pumped to be here. So We the 45 Million got started in the spring of 2021 because we saw that the president was going to hopefully move on something on student loan relief and really need to focus on doing creative actions, doing the political work, and just being like a targeted force to get this over the finish line. And I do this work because I have student loan debt. And when I started college in like the, what was it? The fall of 97, I feel really old right now. It was student debt. It it was right after the deregulated student loans and it's, they weren't as ubiquitous as they are today. So people in my peer group would be like, oh, you have student loan debts. Why are you here at college? Or it'd be like, shouldn't you be at community college? Or why are you here? that just kind of like reaction or like, ew, you're going to have a lot of debt. My parents paid for my college, like literally got responses like that. And that's my first college. And I was at St. Joe's and then I transferred to Penn where they have more financial aid. It's actually got less debt from Penn than I did from St. Joe's. But when I went to, when I finished up school, I was, I had a mixture of public loans and private loans and FFEL loans. You didn't just have one servicer. And so I just fell into this like deep, like, how do you pay it? Or if you hit a bump and you're told to go into deferment or forbearance and all these terms. And then I just felt really ashamed because then again, when I would talk to my like colleagues, they would talk about like what homes they're buying or what condo they're going to buy or where they're renting. And then by that point, my credit was like shot. So like, I am like not benefiting from the college I got because Mm -hmm. of this debt. And I thought it was my fault. And I just kind of held that shame quietly in the inside. And then when I was about, I don't know, in 2010, I was working on a project to protect to protect social security benefits from garnishment, no, social security benefits from cuts. That was during this whole fiscal commission. It was right after the whole economic collapse of like 08 and 09. And all these people are just like, let's cut social security benefits to solve problems. And we're just like, yeah, no. But I had to go to a meeting before work with my boss and this guy who spoke at the meeting asked people to raise their hand if they had student loan debt. And back in 2010, I could still be one of the younger people in the room. And so because I was on the younger side, I'm like literally the only one that raised my hand. And then he goes, how much debt do you have? And I looked at him, I'm sitting next to my boss and I'm like, I'm not telling. And then he asked me again. He said, then he said, well, as long as you're ashamed of your debt, the banks have all the power. And that moment, it was the first time I was like, oh, it's not my fault I have debt. 
oh, my debt is part of a larger structure or problems. Like here I am, I'm an organizer, I'm an advocate. I have no problem fighting for other people and like doing what I'm asked to do and help out. And all that time, I couldn't see how I was being hurt by a bigger system. And then he asked again, how much debt you have? And I said half the amount because like shame is like really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And this guy, you might've heard his name, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. So I'm here doing this work on student debt because Reverend Jesse Jackson put me on the spot, called out my shame, and then moved me to action, which is what excellent organizers do. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was a long path because it's not like rich people are going to sit and and write a check to fund a campaign to end student loan debt. Back in 2010, 2011, when I would broach the subject, people would like pat me on my head and say, oh, that's cute. And so I, it was a windy path of like working on small projects on the side for my other work. And then I realized when this guy named Bernard was running for president, that his campaign could be the fastest way to have popular understanding of issues around higher education. So I didn't care what the job was. It could have been scrubbing toilets. I knew that by being a part of Bernie's campaign in 2015, 2016, I could be part of, you know, making this happen faster. And so that worked. So it did Bernie in 2015, 2016. When the presidential cycle started up in 2019, everyone was talking about student debt. I worked for Bernie again. He ran on full cancellation. And then Joe Biden canceled it. So that's kind of like a, it's a lot more tears involved. But, you know, that's the shortened part of it. Yeah. No, it's so interesting that you bring up the shame element of it and how Mm -hmm. that brought you into this journey and like really almost sort of realizing the surrounding infrastructure of this issue. And I think that's like a really common thing amongst advocates, like across issues, like where you feel like, yes, I can fight for someone else's cause, or even if it's, it's usually, I mean, everything's interconnected. So it's not the grain of salt, but the one that like really impacts you the most that is in your hand, like holding your hand is sometimes the hardest one to see and advocate for. And so I am really curious for like the update of like where we are today. Like, where are we in this fight for student debt cancellation? Because I feel like this summer there's been like, what is the word? Not a, a pendulum? Like, what is that? Really you know that metal thing? thing it's that been exhausting. <laughs> yeah, exhausting for <laughs> sure. Yeah. But I'm curious like so- where we're at. So where we are right now is unfortunately student loans are back on their payments are, are, have restarted, which is sad. They restarted for two reasons. One, you guys might get like ads from this company that tries to be all trendy and cool called SoFi. They also have branding rights of a stadium in California and LA. And That's it's really it sad to perform there. <laughs> and when I went to the show, I just felt gross walking in the SoFi stadium. But I like, you know, I was just like, ugh. But, and then so they filed a lawsuit to kill the pause because, because, of, the, because of the pause, people weren't gonna refi to their trash company. So that was happening. And then Kevin McCarthy, the guy that just got deposed as speaker, he basically said that they would crash the global economy and not raise the debt limit if they didn't include something around student debt in the debt ceiling deal. And what they what he said is like, well, we're gonna turn loans back on in October. And you know, that was a really hard moment. But what they had wanted to do was block all of student loan relief. And so that was the negotiation. And so I disagree with the negotiation. I also, you know, it's one of those things like we lost elections in 22. So we have horrible people like Kevin McCarthy. Well, he's not there anymore. LOL. So I kind of, I kind of spun him getting deposed as like, you hurt student loan borrowers. You're not going to have people defend you when you're speaker and getting ousted by the right wing. 
So there's that part. People, there was another process that changed the repayment prop, one repayment plan. And so a lot of people are enrolling in the SAVE plan, which is a 20 to 25 year old year long repayment plan that is either 10% right now. And in July, it becomes 5% of your income above the poverty threshold. So for many people, not many, but about a million of the 40 million people, you'll have like a zero balance. Other people will have lower. Unfortunately, if you're just hitting the part of your career where you're finally making like good money, the five to 10% of your income might not actually be a good plan for you. So you should be on the standard plan, but people are working on it. And the save plan what it does different than the older IDR plan, income defined repayment plans, is that it cancels your interest every month that isn't paid by it. So you don't have ballooning balances. One of the problems we've seen over the last 20 years is these ballooning, ballooning balances, which the president has also worked on. So there's been these tranches of debt cancellation. I tell him just like cancel 10 billion a week and it'll be great. Uh, that's one way to cancellation. So they fixed it for a bunch of people, like, you know, like I think nearly a million people who should have had their debt canceled years ago because of the, they were on the 20 to 25 year old plans and it just didn't work because all these problems with servicing and like just people weren't acting in good faith, they're getting their debt finally canceled. So like every month it's like they're announcing and the same with the public service loan forgiveness plan. And every time they announce cancellation of these debt, it's like wall to wall front page positive news stories because the American public doesn't actually like this kind of debt, it's shocking. And then right now as we're doing this interview, the announcement. So when we lost the Supreme Court, I just try to block the Supreme Court out of my brain. Yeah. Within <laughs> within three hours, the president and Secretary Cardona did a press conference announcing that they weren't going to let this court have the final say because there are other legal processes. They used the very narrow Heroes Act for this what they proposed before, and there are other authorities. So they are starting today with. They started with like they had a public hearing in July and public comment period. And today they have a negotiated rulemaking committee meeting. So there's going to be six meetings, two day, uh, two, two at a time. So like today and tomorrow and then November 6th and 7th and then in December. And that committee is going to debate the best path for using the Higher Education Act, which was passed in 1965, back when Congress did things for the American people instead of just bicker over who should be speaker and things like that and see what happens with what kind of proposal they put forward. You can, if you want to like, you can go, we can Google negotiated rulemaking department of education and you can find their page on student debt relief. You can read the topic papers and you can sign up to be in the audience to listen, or you can sign up to testify and tell your story because there's public testimony on each of the days. Wow. Well, that's a lot. And <laughs> when, it's so true. It's just been an absolute roller coaster trying to like figure out whether this, you know, relief is really coming or not. And I think so many people have been just kind of in the crosshairs waiting. But to kind of set the stage a little bit too on just like this issue, and we're gonna dive into our I have a stupid question segment, which is like literally the rest of this episode because we have oh, those so many are the questions. Best questions. <laughs> so to kind of again set the stage, like and really like roll it back a little bit. Like how many students in the U.S. have this like secondary education related debt? Like what does that really look like? So when you combine um, public and private debt, so you have you have a cap on for undergraduates have a cap on what you can borrow. Graduate students have a much higher cap. It's about 45 million between public and private. 
And then it's about 42 million that have just have, have the public debt only have the public debt. So, you know, it's a lot of people. And let me ask you a question. When you think of someone who has student debt, what age do you think? Okay, well, the problem is now I feel like lightly educated on this topic. Yeah, same. So I would normally have like thought, you know, someone between the ages of like 23 and 36, perhaps. But now, especially seeing this past cancellation wave of people in their 50s finally being able to stop paying and being able to start saving for their retirement in their 50s, skewed. I know it's the thing. If it, it's a lifestyle, it's, it's not a lifestyle. Sorry, it does actually become a lifestyle because you can't like buy things. But it is a whole life cycle issue of like you get it mm-hmm. when you're 18, or you might be taking out debt. For, we have these product called Parent Plus loans because, shockingly, not all parents have extra cash at the end of every month to pop into a savings account for their kid's college. And the cutoff and Pell grants don't cover the whole cost, and the cutoffs for Pell grants are like a mess. So you have a lot of parents, especially like black parents who end up taking out parent plus loans. And so then they're trying to retire and they have a loan payment. So you have people who actually get their social security benefits garnished to pay off student loans, which is like, that's a whole other problem. But right now, luckily that's not happening. And so that hasn't happened for over three years. And that's been like glorious for people. So it really hits people. It's like all the ages. And so it's like an everybody problem. It's not a like, you know, 25, it's not like about a 25 year old who wants to be able to like go to Bali on vacation. It's really about, you know, people's like day-to-day budgeting. Addison, who's going to Bali? <laughs> I am going to Bali next week. <laughs> on my parents' dime, it's a, parent, it's a family vacation. Mom's turning 60. Oh, that's amazing. I am yeah. figuring out how to like sneak into her suitcase so I can go on this trip. Still working it's on totally that strategy. You can, there's definitely good people you can interview in, mm-hmm. in Bali. I mm-hmm. love this. Maybe a little write-off. Cue the write-off what? video from Schitt's Creek. Like, <laughs> yes. that's, that's the moment. But I am just so curious about that dynamic of like, I can't remember who came out with the article. I want to say it was NPR. But basically it was talking about families living together and how every element Every person in that family has student debt or is helping someone else in that family pay off student debt. And I, I'm just so curious, like when we're looking at that, it's such a whole family problem. Like that's an every American problem. Like why there is so much pushback on canceling these loans that prevent so many things from happening from people just living like obviously healthy lives, being able to afford other things like healthcare in their lives, but also just if you want to be Republican about it, helping the economy. Like, I, I'm curious from like your advocacy standpoint of like what you've kind of come up against. Like what, what are the, the con, what are the cons, wrong word, but you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, totally. I think a couple of things. I think the first thing I want to free is when all of these people are, the Republicans are saying, we got to cut education funding. We got to cut this. They never once say we need to cut five, two nines. Where which wealthy families use to tuck away money for their kids' college, and they get a tax break for doing this. They actually expanded that. So any extra money in a five two nine when their kids are done college, they get to transfer tax free to their kids' four hundred one k's. So they get to basically take money that they gave their kids for free, and then they get to get it for free to start out their retirement. So I think. A big part of understanding education, higher education, especially starting in the 1970s, is you had Reagan come up in California and he 
got rid of the University of California system from being mostly free. And then in the 80s, there was a big, because a big part of it was all of a sudden in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't just like white guys going to college. You know, mm-hmm. people of color started going to college in mass. Women started going. And the old guard was like, and then they started wanting to actually make society better. And so it was like this huge reactionary force to this. And you can, there's a paper written about how they should defund the city university of New York because it was providing too much social mobility. And then in the eighties, they decided like, this is great. We can just get finance higher education and people can just take out debt on their, on their own. And we'll just, we'll transfer that cost. So if you look at the data, like higher the debt, the less investment the state and the federal government have done in education. And I, I look at it as they wanted to take education from being a public good from being as part of the social contract, you get this education and then you become a productive member of society and you're contributing to college being a tax-free wealth transfer from parents to children. Because if you get, say you're, you go to like a fancy private college and your parents pay 200 grand for that. And then maybe you go to law school and your parents pay 200, 300 grand for that. You pay zero taxes on that wealth transfer. So you, you basically get this free gift And then when you finish, you can take all of your money that you're making on your job and you can like buy a house and start accruing wealth. Whereas if your parents couldn't save for college and if your parents couldn't do that, then you're getting debt. So then when you finish up school, you're paying down this debt because you weren't born wealthy. So you're not like really being able to buy a home, go forward. It's basically preventing like the class mobility that should come from education and then it just, it tears apart families. It just makes everything really, really hard. And, you know, the Ivies have done, gone and made like them free for like, if you're under 125K at income, most of them, because they were getting hit for having huge endowments and people getting out debt. And then grad schools are a mess. So, you know, just things are kind of like, it's, it's just because we've become like, I think a meaner country after the Reagan years. Mm-hmm. No, totally. I think what you're saying about it is, it really is. But I think what you're saying about social mobility, it makes me also think about like voter access and like the very like passive aggressive in a sense ways in which we cut voter access and go, oh, we're just protecting the polls. We're, we're just making sure the election and we, we have election integrity. And yeah. it's like, no, that's a poll tax. And like in what you're saying about how we went from schools that were available free of charge for people to making them like essentially lifelong situations or holders of debt for people. It's like, say, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same strategy. It's like, how do we, we'll let you in, but we're really not letting you in. Yeah. And now you have people saying, well, colleges are expensive, expensive. People could just do trades, which trades are great. I love unions. And like the way I look at it is, when people hit 18 or whenever they hit where they want to get education, they should do the path that's best for them. If it's becoming a welder or a plumber, fuck yeah, that's awesome. Those are actually important jobs for like, you know, we need them as we like rebuild for like a green economy. Those are great jobs. Mm-hmm. So is if you want to, you know, do be an assistant and you need like a, a community college degree, that's awesome. If you want like to be a teacher and get a BA or you want to cure cancer and become a doctor, those are all honorable, amazing paths. And the idea that you're being paywalled based on your parents' income is just really the antithesis of like what the American dream should be. And like, we should be better than that. And all of these folks who are saying college is too expensive to go to trades, not one of them are going to go to Choate 
or Sidwell Friends, or I think you guys are in LA, so like Harvard Westlake, and tell the students there to be like, you guys shouldn't go to college. You should just do trades. The parents there, they would pull out pitchforks. They -hmm. would have a riot if like their kids were told you should only have this option of being trades because it's only the children of the poor and working class that are told they should have boundaries on what they get to do for their careers. Instead of saying that everybody in America, you should be able to have the career path that's best for you, that'll fulfill your needs and your family based on your talents and what your drive is for. And to me, that's what the American dream is. It's not telling people you have, you're limited based on your parents' mm-hmm. income. 100%. Yeah. It's also crazy. And it's like, it also just makes me think too about different like kind of shortages that we have with different career paths and jobs and whether it's nurses or teachers or whatever. And it's like, it's interesting to think of it too in this, in this landscape of like student debt and whether they even have access, people have access to even, you know, go on that pathway to get those jobs. But um, I'm also curious too, kind of like what the interest component looks like on like these payments and this debt. Can you kind of paint that picture as well that it's not just like you're walking away with, you know, this debt from the tuition, but there's, it continues to like compound on itself. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a mess. I mean, it, it depends on like what year you borrow. So some people got lucky and have like 3% interest rates, but other people, they have like seven or 8% interest rates, which mm-hmm. again, like wealthy, like all of these like Silicon Valley bros, they don't, when they take out all this debt for, you know, to invest in companies that are going to fail, they don't get interest rates of like seven or 8%. And so it's like one, it's just totally absurd that like, it's not only you're taking out debt, it's like an absurd interest rate. And so it's like the government, so for the direct loans, like the government makes money off the debt. And then you have all these servicers, which were the problem because they're the ones that whined to the Supreme Court. They're like, oh no, this is going to hurt us. We have standing. You shouldn't cancel the debt. It's like, you know, you guys are terrible, which is the problem that just goes into the whole privatization of government services, but it's a whole nother topic. But you know, so I think the debt, the interest on the debt makes it even worse. And it's been hard to figure out, you know, because for campaigns, it's like, I call it like order operations, because right now we just need to get rid of a big chunk of the debt first. But we also do need to deal with the interest, because I feel like if we were just to change the interest rate right now, a lot of people would go like, check mark, we solved the problem and move on. And you still have a lot of people that are drowning in mm-hmm. this debt. And so and then obviously we need to get to free college, but there are, you know, I think it's representative Courtney in, in Connecticut has a bill for getting rid of the interest rate on the, on the debt. So like that conversation is happening and like people are like, you know, are working on, on that part of it as well. Totally. Cause I think, I mean, there's so many elements, of this conversation of like being young and signing up for college and signing up essentially for these loans and not really knowing what they mean. And two, they are incredibly confusing. Like I'm not a math girly. Like I can't like necessarily define every element of an interest rate and how, you know, all those things go down. And so I, you know, I wonder too, like from like an interest rate perspective, it's like, you're signing up to pay for the school. You're not signing. Like, I don't think there's like the knowledge of I'm also signing up to pay essentially a tax on what I signed up to pay. Like, it's like buying, I don't know, a bag of apples at the grocery store and then adding 10 bucks to it every time you buy it. And so I think there's like such a lack of understanding around that. And I'm curious if there's an origin story in addition to sort of like what we've already been talking about as to like where that comes from. Like, what's the, what's the point? 
I mean, I think the point is really just that the state, the people, the Republican majorities and this whole effort, like, you know, Heritage Foundation, all these groups, like, just really pushed to divest from education. And then they made up the gap through this, this lending. And then at first, banks made a lot of money off of it. So you had these FF, it was the, the FFEL loans. And those were loans that were federally guaranteed. So the, the government would, like, if the, if the person defaulted, the government would pay. So there was like zero risk to the banks. And then the bank serviced them. And then sometimes they would sell them off. And then they would do this like weird, like student loan backed, like they were like the student loan backed security things that were really gross and like packaged and sold on Wall Street. Kind of like what happened with the housing crisis and like the securitization of like the the, the mortgage debt. And in the 90s, it got really bad. And so they actually, that's when they brought in this whole direct lending. And there's actually a press conference that I found on C-SPAN because I'm like that level of nerd in research where Joe Biden is actually making fun of these FFEL banks for like, woe is me, woe is me. They're always complaining about how hard they got it. And it's like, dude, you guys, your money is guaranteed. You guys are not the victims here. Like Mm -hmm. that press conference is like amazing because he's like... Mm -hmm. It's like from 92 or 93. And so it's just like, oh, so it's like kind of funny to be like, oh, he really just knows all this stuff. He's been around for like young Joe. Of, of, oh, of the young Joe. So that that was great to, to watch that. And so y'all might be familiar with the Affordable Care Act. And so the Affordable Care Act, when there was provision of it, because you know how they do these like big bills. It's like, well, we got one chapter pass something. So you start just like kind of like throwing everything into the big bills. So part of there was a provision in the Affordable Care Act that actually shut down the FFEL program and turned all the lending lending to direct lenders to, to, to the government as the direct loans, which obviously got all the FFEL people really mad because they really liked the gravy train. Y'all might have heard of Sally May. They're like one of the bigger names in the student debt space. So they used to be a federal guarantee agency. And then they spun off to a private entity. And as part of that, they, they donated all this money instead of a foundation called Lumina Foundation, which is all profits to student loan debt. So they all, a bunch of these companies have foundations. So the Great Lakes Foundation, ECMC Foundation. And then you have this basically dirty profits of like abusive student loan debt that then, then influences higher education policy, which then these, these big groups get money from like Lumina or ECMC or Great Lakes and these other companies. And then they're like, not always asking for like what we actually need because, you know, and they don't have the same, like if Exxon was giving money to a climate group, people would be like, yeah, I don't know if we really trust you, but because you don't, people don't talk about this and it's super specified to know where Lumina money came from or where ACMC money came from that these groups can like take this money and like no one's like shaming them for it or asking how it impacts their decision making. Mm-hmm. Damn, it's all so wild. And speaking of is talking about like also PPP loans, which have been canceled and literally have been canceled for members of Congress who are against canceling student debt. So you kind of paint that picture of like the background there and kind of the hypocrisy here, especially from people who do push back. Yeah, no. And it's obviously like, I thought it was great that in a moment of crisis, the government responded to the level of the crisis with a proportion of a program that we needed. But you have all of these people who got PPP loans 
And then they get them canceled, like just easy, like Thanos snap uh, of cancellation. And then they turn around and are like bitter and mean and other people getting help. And it's been really funny. There's like this one-to-one correlation, like people that are high and mighty against loan relief. It's become like a meme because you just go on the ProPublica site, check out their the name. And it's like, oh, you got a million canceled. Oh, you got 900,000 canceled. And it's just like, you got this help and it was good. It's good to keep people on payroll for the ones who kept people on payroll. Cause we know not all of them did that. And you can't see that you getting help means that like, it's good for other people to get help too. Totally. Well, totally. I feel like that's kind of a theme across the board, even as we've seen some of these smaller cancellations come through where so many people are like, well, it's not me that's being positively impacted. So how dare anyone else receive something positive? And I think there's, I understand like having that, you know, gut reaction of, well, I want to be helped too. But there's such this like weird animosity where it seems like, God forbid, someone else benefit from something that will change their life. Like, it's so weird to me, this like mentality. And I think also to the the depth of like this stuff, like I know it like with college loans, like you can't declare bankruptcy. And so many, so many of these members of Congress have declared bankruptcy on various business and blah, blah, blah. And Shit happens yeah. for people. I'm not trying to belittle that. But How many times did Trump declare bankruptcy? I Six. lost track. <laughs> Six. And it's yeah. like, he's able, you know, through chapter 11, you're able to, you know, change what those assets look like and where you're able to, you know, obviously change the course of your business and your life and whatever. But then when it comes to education, which so many people for so many reasons end up not being able to pay or pay in, you know, a straight line, you can't do that. Like, I, yeah. It blows my mind. Like you shouldn't have this debt in the first place because right. college right. totally. Free. Or right. if you have a little bit of debt, it should be like manageable. Like if mm-hmm. you graduated debt with like two thousand dollars, like that's yeah. manageable. You can deal with that. And like people should be contributing and paying it forward. Like I like, or you have the tax kit set up so where you're making a little bit more of your money because you went to college, you're then helping to contribute to the next generation, kind of like with social yeah. security. You're paying now to help people that are currently retired. And like with a college thing, like you get the benefit first and then like, you're kind of like contributing towards it, which we all should do. And it should be like an equalized program. So no matter how much wealth you're born into, you don't have a benefit that mm-hmm. exceeds like, you know, like, sure, get your, like, you know, your parents might help you with a down payment for a condo. Fine. But like the other person shouldn't be in a hole and not even be able to afford, you know, have the credit to get an apartment. Yeah. And there's also like, just a lot of the pushback and the narratives around student debt cancellation. It's also the people who are like, well, I paid off my student debt. So, you know, people shouldn't be getting these, these freebies, these handouts, yada, yada. And that's like, also, I believe one of the kind of things that spurred some of these court cases. So I'm curious too, to kind of like lead into that of like a, that like pushback and that narrative and like, maybe just talking about like the validity to that, if any, if obviously yeah. bad, like well, yeah, and a court things. cases. Yeah. What I tell people is that, you know, if you already paid off your debt, you're not going to get help. That sucks. It sucks how long it takes to make change in America. And like, right. you have every right to be a little cranky about that, but I hope that after you get over being a little cranky, you'll understand that this is good for people and you can join in to make sure the next generation doesn't go through having to pay off the debt. Because I think it's completely valid 
to be frustrated. Like, I mean, I haven't got my debt canceled yet and all these other people have, and I'm very happy for that. But I'm like, oh my God, I'm yeah. and that's have. just so, like, like progress. I, that's just like yeah, being like, a good human. Yeah, it just takes a lot to make change. And like the court cases, so, I mean, there were so many court cases. It's like every day there was yeah. a new one popping up. But the two that ended up mattering the most, one was funded by this place called the Jobs Creators Network, which was funded by a Trump guy, the founder of Home Depot. He actually has a great, he has like a weird origin story where he wanted to be a doctor, but his parents couldn't afford it. So he ended up becoming a pharmacist instead because that program was cheaper. And he opened up a pharmacy, realized he was good at retail and created Home Depot. And instead of like having this way of thinking to be like, it's a bummer that I didn't get to go to become a doctor because my parents didn't have money. So I want to make sure no one else has that barrier. He instead is just like mean and bitter and reactionary. So that's a bummer. And so he funded the Jobs Creator Network and they found two people to be plaintiffs in Texas. And they did this thing called judge shopping. And so you all might be familiar with the Fifth Circuit. They're the reason why, you know, we don't have abortion rights in America anymore. And a laundry list of like every bad thing that's happening in the courts in America is coming out of the Fifth Circuit, which includes all of Texas. And Texas has these single districts for judges. So you can literally like figure out how to file so you get the judge that you want. And so they went in front of a very conservative Trump judge who kind of, I think in his ruling said that student loan relief was like, you know, akin to what happened in Nazi Germany. It was just like, absurd and then of course he released his ruling that did the injunction on loan relief right as the federal society was having their big ball honoring like alito and those people and so it was all timed and then the other case was the one out of missouri which we won at the just at the main court level because the judge found that these servicers from six states didn't have standing because they didn't have this right to do what they're doing because they were just contractors but then you had the appellate court of the eighth district was stacked with you know conservative judges and they did the stay so then you had they got both cases got fast-tracked to the court and the texas one that caused the injunction actually was nine to zero saying that these plaintiffs had no standing but they bragged about how it didn't matter that our case was flawed it got us the injunction which then got us blocking cancellation which is just just they're just not operating in good faith and not one of these right. people that were concerned did they reach out to be like hey how do we solve this problem collaboratively no because it's just that they're opposed to it ideologically totally well i think that's also like so much of like the frustration across issues that from like the democratic side like we feel where it's like okay maybe say coming from the Republicans, you don't like something. You don't feel like it is representative of your values in whatever way. But then the question is, okay, so what's your solution? Like, what are you proposing here? And then it's silence. It's crickets. It's just like a dismantling of things or mass destruction of something and no solution. And that is always constantly sort of mind boggling too for me personally, where I'm like, what what's your end game here? Like what, what is like, if you paint the ideal idealistic picture of like what you want that result to look like, like, what is it? And there's no answer. Yeah. Cause they just want to, they're just like selfish and they don't actually want people to, to grow and thrive. They just, they want to have like minority rule control and just have power over people. And it's like really frustrating because we can be so much better and we can do so much better and we could actually collaborate across like 
some differences and negotiate things out, but they don't want to do that. They just want to have full control. And, you know, you look at just that it's been their whole plan and it's just really, it's a bummer that that's how they operate, but we have to then fight back really hard and show popular support and really frame up like a good versus bad. Mm-hmm. Well, post all of these court cases and court blockings and all of the things, the Biden administration rolled out the safe plan. Can you kind of explain, you know, what that is and how it works? Sure. So IDR income defining payment programs have been a mess because people have been on them for like 20 and 25 years. One weren't getting the cancellation at the end that they were promised. They basically, what it does is it makes your monthly payment supposedly like more manageable because it's based on a percentage of your income, as opposed to like, say if you have a car payment for like five years and you know that like every month you're going to pay like a set number. This is then taking it as a percentage of your income above like the poverty lines line uh, of that. And so what saved that, a problem with that is that the interest kept accruing and compounding. So people's balances went from like 50K to like 300K in some circumstances. And that was, so people had literally paid off what the original ticket took out. And then they're like still paying. And then they were like, well, you missed a payment. Therefore, you're not eligible. So all the servicing was bad or people were put into the wrong programs. They weren't told that they should consolidate and all these things. And so what SAVE does is if you enroll, you then pay for undergraduate debt. Starting in June or July, it'll be 5% of your income. So it shrinks down the payment. And then for if you have under under 12 grand of debt, you pay for 10 years and over that you pay for 20 years. And with graduate debt, it's a, if you already have undergrad debt, it'll be like an average. And then that's for 25 years. And the big part is your interest doesn't accrue anymore. And so whatever interest you're not paying off each month with like the payment that wipes away. So your balance isn't getting bigger every month. Got it. That's huge. Like huge to not see that continue to blow. I have like a really dumb question is there anything within the plan or any of the other plans like that considers where people live? Like living in New York City is bloody expensive. Living in LA, I mean, living anywhere in this country right now at this point is so expensive. But like what someone making 40K in New York City versus in Oklahoma City, like there is a difference in like what, how much money you have left at the end of the month to pay your loans after, you know, paying your rent and your healthcare, if you even have healthcare. So like, I'm just curious, like if there's anything integrated in that or no, no, it's not. And bringing up healthcare, you're not, the flip side is your student loan payments aren't like, it's not like when you're seeing if you can get a subsidy for the affordable care act, having a loan payment isn't seen as something that could then drop you down to get a subsidy. So, and the cliffs end up being around the same amount. So no, I mean, it would be great to have like regional understandings of this, but could you imagine the right wing being like, you're letting those people in like these like big blue cities pay less. And it, it just, you know, this whole federalist system we have of states is like a whole, it makes a lot of this stuff complicated. You yeah. have a very good point. <laughs> That's so funny. Cool. So valid. Yeah. But knowing, knowing their messaging and knowing like where they're going to, you know, sort of pop off from is obviously very important. Well, I think sort of for our next, you know, our rounding out here, what comes next? What can people look out for? And of course, how can they support? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to look out for is, you know, whenever they, the administration announces a new round of people getting debt relief, celebrate that. And like, is it enough? No. But the fact that people are getting helped while we're trying to make bigger change is really good because lots right. of times no one's getting help while you're like fighting for the school. But meanwhile, people are getting help and it just shows the validity of the work and people, mm-hmm. people get helped in the meantime, which is always good. You know, watch these hearings, like hop in. I know people work. And so like watching a six hour long hearing is like only people who, you know, this is what we do can, can do, but like pop in and like watch for an hour, tell your friends to watch you know, sign up to comment and like give three minutes of comment at the end of these meetings about what debt relief means to you, what hardships should be considered, why, why this is important for your community and keep telling your members of Congress, tell your electeds, tell everyone in your community. Like, I think a lot of your, your listeners probably are on group chats, probably like way too many group chats Mm -hmm. on multiple platforms. So you can't keep track of if it's like a Facebook message and Instagram you know, all these different things, but like in your group chats, talk about it, like talk about your debt, talk about who, which, who are the people that are working to get rid of your debt and who are the people who don't want your debt to get relief? Because we definitely don't want to wake up in January of 2025 and have people in power who want to keep you in debt. hundred percent. I love that. I love all those little auction items and it's very, very on brand with, what we push people to do and what I think our audience needs. And yeah, the tuning into hearings, the commenting, giving those kind of like real tangible things to do to like stay engaged and push these things forward, I think is awesome. So thank you for raising that. And thank you for diving into all of this with us. So many. I forgot one important thing. Yeah. Right now, as we hit return and repayment, if you're having a hard time paying, there's an on-ramp. And so from now through the end of September of next year, if you can't pay, the Department of Education will not report you to creditors. So you basically have this, like, you'll still accrue interest. And like, you know, you have to think about it for like that kind of risk that you want to put yourself into, but you won't be put into default. You won't be garnished. You won't have any of those things happen. So you should, you know, not, if right now you're just so stressed about your payment, take a deep breath and like you have some time to figure it out. If you need to wait until July when the saved payments go down to just 5% versus 10%, like you can do that. And then if any of your people have been defaulted or in default, you can use fresh start right now to get out of default and then be able to have a chance to, to have like a no fault getting out of the default. So I just wanted to add those two little things. Amazing. So, so helpful. Again, it's been just like such a roller coaster for people and, it's just another one of those kind of government things where it's like, okay, there's maybe relief, but where do I find it? How do I access it? So again, thank you so much for doing this deep dive with us and we just appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. It was great meeting you both. Have fun on your trip. And I look forward to catching the pod. Likewise. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping 
So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.